Welcome to episode 19 of Critical Care in Emergency Medicine, a podcast by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. Today, we are featuring a podcast from RebelCast, hosted by Dr. Salim Rizai. This episode features speakers Drs. Ashika Jain, David Farsi, Cameron Kyle Siddle, and Evie Marcolini discussing trying not to intubate early and why ADRSNet may be the wrong ventilator paradigm during COVID-19. So welcome back to RebelCast. I'm your host, Salim Rezaei. And anybody who is practicing emergency medicine or up in the ICUs, I think pretty much the thing that's on the forefront of our minds is COVID-19. And it has been quite the whirlwind. There has been tons of information coming out and just not enough time to process all that information. And meanwhile, there's so many of us that are on the front lines in the ED and up in the ICU, and we're having to take care of these patients. Guidelines can't seem to agree on what to do, and it it is a very stressful and anxiety-provoking time. And the one thing that I continuously say is, personally, I have never been so wrong so many times about a single disease process. And the thing I want to kind of, the caveat I want to start with before we get into this is that what we say today on this podcast, which by the way, we're recording it on April 3rd, 2020, with all the information that's coming out, our viewpoints that we express today may not be the same tomorrow or a week from now. So just keep that in mind as we get into this. So now before we get into it, I think I have three guests that are on with me, and I'm going to have each of them introduce themselves, kind of tell us where they work and in what capacity, and uh, we'll kind of get into it. So thank you guys for taking the time and your willingness to do this. Hi, my name is Ashika Jane. I'm an emergency medicine, ultrasound, and trauma critical care attending at NYU and Bellevue in New York City. So I'm... Um- Dr. David Farsi, I'm the chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine, Director of Emergency Medicine Critical Care at Monsignor Medical Center, Miami Beach, Florida. And I'm also the president of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. Uh, this is uh, Cameron Kyle Seidel. I'm an ER and critical, critical care trained doctor working in uh, Brooklyn, New York at Maimonides Hospital. Um, uh, yeah, I just finished fellowship last July and had been working in the ER, but was tasked with opening up a uh, full COVID ICU when everything started turning uh, really tough here in New York, you know, for things I'll, I'll talk about later, um, you know, I essentially thought I was opening up an ICU, uh, which would be treating the ARDS I saw in fellowship and sort of quickly came to realize that this looks very different. You know, essentially, uh, I ran into some uh, moral issues w- with sort of the protocols, uh, which are the standard protocols across the country, which our hospital is doing and which are being put out in extremely good faith and, and being pushed forward by, by people that are working their butts off. But, but I felt that uh, these aren't the protocols that I would want for me or my family. So I ended up having to step down from my ICU position. So now I'm back in the ER, which has now turned into an ICU. And we are uh, setting up a system by which we can care critically for all of the extremely sick patients now that there are no ICU beds. I'm Evie Marcolini. I am a emergency physician and neurointensivist. And trained in surgical critical care. I work at Dartmouth Hitchcock in the mountains of New Hampshire, and I work 50% in the emergency department and 50% in the neuro ICU. And these days, our neuro ICU, which is a brand new unit, has been dedicated as the COVID unit because geographically, we are the most distant in the hospital, and it's very easy to cohort patients there. So we've picked up and moved over to share the SICU and take our patients there. 
Well, thank you guys for taking the time. I know everybody's really busy making plans at their own kind of shops and dealing with the patients that are coming in. So really appreciate you guys doing this. Uh, the first question I wanted to kind of throw out to you guys is that, you know, as Cameron kind of alluded to in his introduction, is that we've all kind of been working under this paradigm of COVID-19 pneumonia eventually turning into ARDS or being ARDS in the sickest patients. In my mind, and I'm not an intensivist, I'm just an emergency medicine physician, so I'm probably the least qualified on this podcast to talk to this, but the, this paradigm just doesn't seem to fit in my mind. And, and Cameron, you put out a, a tweet not too long ago kind of voicing that concern. And what I have seen so far in my limited experience with these patients is that they tend to have a normal to high compliance and they certainly, many of them do not seem like they're in any type of distress. I mean, like the name ARDS kind of would tell us. So what are you guys seeing locally at your shops? Is this like crazy? Is this out there? Or is this, are, are, can you guys corroborate that? Necessity and lack of availability have become the mother of intervention. So much of the way that we're currently practicing goes against many of the tenets of emergency medicine. I took care of a patient last night 50, no significant past medical history aside from obesity, who walked in with an oxygenation saturation of about 50%. It was tachypnic and tachycardic talking to me. And I put him on a non-rebreather and he came up into like the 80s and we sort of just hung out with him. I didn't immediately jump to ventilate him. I didn't immediately jump to, to intubate him, mostly because... I think I only have a few vents left. So is this really the guy that I want to use my last vent for? I don't have any more tubing for high flow. So high flow is not really an option for me either. And I could use CPAP, except I don't have many of those left either. So let's see how I can do this with just a non-rebreather. And so we're getting creative, right? We're, we're getting creative and we're letting patients be creative with us. Proning, side proning, really just allowing things to happen and watching patients. Again, something that a month ago, there's no way this guy wouldn't have already been intubated. To think that we understand this infection, I think is very naive. We don't know what's happening. We don't understand the pathophysiology. Maybe it's like ARDS. Maybe it's like high altitude pulmonary edema. Maybe it's micro infarcts. There's so many different theories of how this is behaving. It's behaving like a little bit of all of these, but there's no one cohesive picture. And I think that's the part that's sort of befounding to all of us is that we don't really understand how to really treat this because it's a four month old virus that we just, we don't understand how it's already running when it didn't even really learn how to walk yet. You know, I mean, part of how this all started for me was, um, you know, it centers around this uh, specific thing, which as ER doctors, we were quite, uh, and critical care doctors, we're quite familiar with, which is when to put in a breathing tube. And this being one of the primary interventions we do, and one of the extremely distressing things we do, understanding that we are uh, putting a breathing tube in patients who by all records across the world have a mortality somewhere between 50 and 80%. So it's not like a usual thing we're going through. And, you know, what I noticed in the first couple of days with these patients is, you know, these patients were not displaying, um, you know, respiratory distress in the sense of respiratory fatigue in the sense of all the things we're used to when we're dealing with conditions which 
lead to respiratory failure. You know, so in my mind, ARDS as a term is, you know, and I think terms are very important in medicine. Terms lead to uh, treatment strategies. And I think for this reason, we have to get these terms right. You know, it's, you can uh, look at an, you know, the term NSTEMI, and it's a similar thing that's going on. You know, someone says to someone have an NSTEMI, what does it really mean? Does it mean they have an acute clot-driven ischemic coronary process? They had an event or an MI? Or does it mean they have bad coronaries and were tachycardic and did not have an event? And so it's becoming confusing. And so I'd say in this case, we're calling something ARDS and we're calling condition where, you know, their PF ratio can be 100. I can flip them over and it goes to 300, you know, so they can meet and not meet Berlin criteria within 20 seconds. And so to call something ARDS in this sense, I think is some is unfortunately confusing us. And, and what I see in front of me and what I have seen are patients that do not live or die uh, from respiratory fatigue. Um, and it seems to me that they are, are dying from a pure hy- hypoxemic condition. That is to say their diaphragms work going on and I don't know, you know what's going on, but doesn't seem to have any relation, at least initially during this high compliance stage to ARDS. Um, That is to separate patients who have progressed to the low compliance stage, who fully exhibit the symptoms uh, or the signs uh, physiologically uh, when you you evaluate their lungs on the ventilator uh, of having a low compliance uh, ARDS state. But but the the ones we are seeing initially uh, and the ones uh, the lungs we see right after we put them on the vent nearly universally do not, in my mind, display any characteristics resembling the ARDS that, that I uh, saw and treated in fellowship. Yeah. So at Dartmouth, we are not in the surge yet. We are kind of waiting for the surge to come over to us from your shop, uh, Cameron. And it it's we're doing a lot of preparation and a lot of simulation and running through our protocols. But um, I will tell you that we what we are seeing is that the patients who we otherwise would have intubated, patients with SATs, you know, close to seventy, we're waiting and we're doing other things ahead of time. High flow nasal cannula, thinking about. CPAP, but uh, we're, we are not actually using CPAP yet, but the high flow nasal cannula is, is our go-to right now. And the thing about this is when you look at the chest x-ray findings and the CT findings for these patients, what you see is something that looks like ARDS. And as intensivists, we know what we know and what we know is what we use. So the ARDSnet protocol is, is something that everybody's familiar with. And for the most part, we have used it, but I agree that it may not be the right way to go. And in the beginning, we were talking about intubating early. When we were talking about that, it's mostly for the patients, but in some ways it's to protect the clinicians. Because when you're intubating you're at the highest risk of aerosolization. So we didn't want to make this a crash intubation. We wanted to make it very practiced. We wanted everybody to be familiar and have the muscle memory of what everyone is going to do to get this intubation done in a safe and efficient way. And so intubating early made sense. 
But now, as we are going through the natural progression of learning about this disease, and and, and that's not just at, at my institution, it's across the country and across the world, we're running out of ventilators and we're running out of options. And we're recognizing that if we can stave off intubation, then we can, uh, if we can use moves like high flow nasal cannula, awake proning, or maybe even CPAP, then the patient will spend less time on the ventilator. And that's good. Um, so I, I wholeheartedly agree with the thinking that if we don't intubate early, it might be okay and it might even be better. So um, my experience um, has been somewhat similar been a train of shock trauma. I've been an intensivist for now 16 years. Um, I brought ECMO. I brought pronation in my institution, and I'm familiar with ARDS. But something doesn't look like ARDS. And we have those dogma where, you know, we see something and, you know, we look at patients and they're hypoxic and, you know, they're going to tire out and they're going. we need to intubate them early. Until I had a 65-year-old male who just said, no, don't intubate me, absolutely refused. And I'm finding myself having an argument with a patient of O2 sat in the 70s, 79, 80s. I'm having an argument with this guy. And, you know, as an emergency physician, I'm going, he's not, doesn't have the mental capacity to sign against AMA. He's hypoxic. But this guy was making more sense than I was. And I was like, this is, something's wrong. This something is completely wrong. This is, what am I missing? And this is when I spent 48 hours at night, couldn't sleep. And, you know, we had significant amount of patient intubated in our, in our ICU. And we're requiring more ventilators. And I'm saying to myself, you know, we're not even near the surge. We had two nursing home who were now were contaminated. And I'm saying this is not even close to the surge. And something doesn't feel right. And I woke up on... Wednesday morning last week, and I heard Cameron podcast, and I just said, holy shit, this is it. The patient was dropped on the Everest. And the patient looks hypoxic, but they can walk. They can do certain things that we have never seen. It goes against every dogma. And when even when I talk to my attending and my attending in the ICU, everybody's telling me, you know what, they're going to fell off the cliff cliff of the earth, they're going to fill off the O2 oxygen dissociation. And when, when they're tired out and it's going to be a crash intubation and I'm yet to see this. I haven't seen a patient tire out. Yes. I'll tell you patient in the 80 with comorbidities, they don't do well. They don't do well, but they don't, they don't like oxygen. They don't get unable to prone. Those are the more difficult, but that's a different patient. I think there's multiple sets of patient and we'll talk more about this. You know, this has led me to believe that innovating these people early, which is what all the guidelines tell us, what all the information out of Europe, Italy, China, everybody's saying innovate early, innovate early, innovate early. And if we're working on the hypothesis that this is not crazy, one of the big fears is with non-invasive ventilation and high-flow nasal cannula is aerosolization, right, for safety of the staff. And, and this is a real risk. But I think for anybody who's dealing with these patients, my hope is, is that we are in full PPE. So either an N95 with eye protection and a gown and gloves, or maybe a papper. In my mind, the risk should be very minimal. 
if we're using these strategies. And I just like to think, or I just like to ask you guys, what are your thoughts about non-invasive ventilation, high flow nasal cannula as an intermediary step for some of these patients? We struggled with this. And, you know, I can tell you that um, appropriate PPE is hard because, you know, what we were joking about initially is that when you wear the same PPE for 14 hours, is it really PPE? And that is the state of how things are in New York City. You know, I, I think that at some point, uh, which is a larger story, even outside of the hospital, is sort of that, you know, not only is this a terrible virus that is extremely deadly, but the fear of the virus makes it so we cannot even treat people uh, as well as we wish we could. You know, and there are therapies we can't do. If there are complications from lines, they're not going to get surgeries. They're not going to get hematoma evacuations or pseudoaneurysm you know, repairs or so everything it's a, uh, you know, we're dealing with a disease, which is not only terrible, but the terrible ramifications of it being a contagion, uh, make everything worse. Um, just, you know, one thing I just want to, you know, bring up, you know, to the group is because many people thought initially that I was absolutely against intubation and that's not true. You know, I, I do think that to some extent in this process, which seems to likely be, uh, something dealing with uh, pulmonary hypoxic, uh, hypoxemic vasoconstriction uh, regionally, which, you know, I do think that in some sense, hypoxemia begets hypoxemia. And, and when I see someone saturating in the 70s, you know, I get nervous even if they uh, look good and are talking well. You know, my initial deterrence toward intubation uh, was that I knew what was on the backside of it. Uh, which was going to be uh, an ARDSNET strict protocol for a high compliance disease, uh, whereby I know the patient is going to require high PEEP per the PEEP tables to achieve a saturation, which is adequate. And so, you know, in the end of all this, if we are able to figure out a better strategy, you know, better ventilator strategy, I mean, I can turn a, you know, we can turn a ventilator into a, a, a CPAP machine, or we can essentially use a ventilator to simulate high flow and we can't get the washout and everything. But so, you know, I'm not entirely sure that, that I have seen patients um, go down very quick. Now I, they don't appear to go into respiratory fatigue. They simply get extremely hypoxemic and they get bradycardic and they die, which doesn't appear to be a death by, by uh, you know, ARDS. But, but you know, I, I do think that the, this question of when to intubate were we to have a more successful uh, ventilator strategy, one that I believe would better, you know, and I don't have the answer. I, I hope to get great minds on the answer, but but that would uh, better uh, fit the disease we are seeing that perhaps uh, I wouldn't take people so long and, and perhaps I would advocate a, an earlier uh, strategy, but so long as I know what the um, uh, what is on the backside of that, you know, which is probably a high pressure ventilatory strategy for a high compliance uh, disease. You know, I, I'm really reluctant when I see anyone who may survive without it to intubate them, and, and it's a I think it's a huge quandary, and it's really tough. Just like you know, David said it. It's really man, it's tough on us, and it's tough on ER doctors, and it's tough on critical care doctors when you're staring in the face of someone who's talking to you and. and you know, looking at a 70% mortality and trying to figure out if you should do it because you don't want to put it on someone who would survive without it. And you don't want to not put it on someone who would survive with it, you know? So it's, it's, it's a real difficult quandary. And I think that that, you know, I think those of 
us that are faced with that, you know, I think that is where the, some of the illumination happens because you just realize, like David said, I've just never been faced with that quandary before. It just, it seems something completely out of the ordinary and, and uh, you know, it's just like a disease I've never seen. So David, when you mentioned to me today that this seems like a hape syndrome, high altitude pulmonary edema. At first I said, well, you know, you'd have to be at high altitude to make that happen. But then I gave it some more thought and thinking back to what the mechanism for high altitude pulmonary edema is, it's really hydrostatic pulmonary edema and it's caused by hypoxemia. So when hypoxemia happens at altitude, the pulmonary artery pressure increases because you have alveolar hypoxia, and then you get pulmonary arterial vasoconstriction. And it's not everywhere. It's not a homogeneous pulmonary artery vasoconstriction. It's patchy. And if you look at chest x-rays or imaging of a patient that has HAPE, it kind of looks like COVID like what we're seeing. And I've been thinking about this all day because you just brought it up to me and I'm thinking, maybe that makes sense. And we know all along that we've been treating hypoxemia with these patients. And when we treat hypoxemia, I think high flow nasal cannula is a, a great adjunct. I, I, I love high flow nasal cannula. And the the shop that I work in now, we have access to it very easily. And I'm happy about that. Talking about the, the, the personal protection part of it is a little bit dicey, but I think we can easily protect ourselves and protect the patients. The reality is that when we work in the emergency department or in the ICU, yes, we are exposed to patients with COVID and aerosolization is a big deal. And we need to be very careful about it. However, when we walk around the hospital and open a door, we're exposed to it as well. We really don't know where this is hanging out. We thought that this was simply aerosol transmission. We, we know better now. We know that it's, that it's everywhere. It's on surfaces. It's, it's, it, we could pick it up in the grocery store. We could pick it up on the cardboard box that Amazon delivers, right? But, but if we, think about it and you could you could definitely pick it up on a new york subway and the new york subway yeah but <laughs> if, we, sure. <laughs> yeah. if we think about it as 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 a mechanism of hape it fits so well with how we're treating these people and, and david I, I don't know how you came up with this except that you're really brilliant but the more I've thought about it today, the more it makes sense. I didn't come up with it. It's uh, I think a lot of us associate this, and the reason for me it was it wasn't actually me who came up with this. I saw this when I was discussing with my attendings, and one of my attendings suffered ape uh, in Haspen, and he said he was walking around talking and had a heart rate of one thirty or two side of thirty nine, and until they descended him, and he's like. And when he said this in front of all my attendings, people just said, wait a second, we need to take our time. To go back to the question that you asked, Aline, you ask our fear, right? And you said there's some evidence, right? This evidence about 
uh, high flow oxygen and CPAP and BiPAP as mode of what's been described sometimes as weaponizing this aerosolized uh, virus. And I think that a lot of it came from the SARS crisis in 2002. A lot of it was real <clears throat> expert opinion. The little science behind it has been very little. And we haven't seen much evidence with, if we start putting, you know, putting high flow and putting a mask to the patient. You know, there's few trials. I know you posted one where you have reduction of aerosol if you put the mask. But you pose a question, right? If we don and doff properly, if we have the right techniques, then we are protected. And we've heard the point from Cameron and from uh, Evie that I truly think as a chairman, I spend a lot of time with all my staff. My staff is not just, just doctors. My staff is nurses, techs, uh, radiologists, tech, uh, x-ray tech, every, every, everybody that runs our department. And at the initial phase a month ago, we were seeing people testing positive and coming sick, nine, six, 12, 18, 20 of our staff. And there's something about, you know, auto-infection themselves, doffing, not washing their hand properly. And I think the fear of us infecting ourselves, intubating a patient is real. But I think if we're using the right PPE that you ask, I think the fear is relative, relative. And, you know, I'm going to requote what you said in one of your casts. You know, there is no such thing as an emergency in pandemic. It's, there is no such thing as heroic effort and we're going to run and, and be the star like on, we see on TV shows. We're not. We're going to take the time. We're going to don. We're going to watch each other don. We're going to approach and do what we need to do. But I have to tell you, now in three weeks, seeing several of those patients, I am yet to see a crash intubation. You know, we've heard this. There's multiple patients that fits multiple different group. There's the walking around talking and doesn't even know is mildly hypoxic. There's the severe hypoxic happy. And then there's a third group who comes in and they're going to need to be intubated. But those people are going to be need to be intubated. At, they're not going to flip around with high flow. They're not going to flip around. And we know the decision is going to be very, very short. So I think this is the dogma of patient walking in with 92, tachypneic, tachycardic, then we must intubate it right there, needs to stop. That's what we're asking. We're not saying don't, we, we're not going to intubate anybody. It's before we jump to intubation, take the time to see your patient. Last night, uh, 61 pulse ox, heart rate of 135. Um, Tachypnic, the guy is talking, sitting. And, you know, we took pictures. We have pictures. We have, he, he was signing the consent to give us pictures. And we proned him, high flow, 88, and two hours later, we're, we're like in the 90s. So, uh, Cameron, you, you kind of mentioned this, and I, I kind of want to throw this out to everyone. So I think we have to be careful when we read through the current evidence that we have. And, you know, the current evidence when it comes to COVID-19 pneumonia is uh, people getting intubated and what's their mortality rate once they get intubated. And depending on which paper you read, the range is anywhere from 50 to 90% mortality, which is not a good number. Uh, many are actually in the 70s and 80s, and it's almost like once we intubate them, it's like a death sentence. 
But I think the thing that we need to be careful about when we make these statements is that a lot of these are retrospective and observational. So we can't really say causation from the intubation or the mechanical ventilation itself. We can only say it's an association. So another way to say that is maybe these patients are just so sick that end up on the ventilator, they're going to have a high mortality anyways. But the flip side or the other way to say that is maybe the fact that we intubate them and and put them under this ARDSnet protocol is actually what's increasing that mortality. And so the first question I want to ask you guys, because I don't run ventilators as much as you do, is you have a patient in front of you, they're intubated, they have a normal to high compliance, and they were hypoxemic, and that's why they got intubated. What current ventilator strategy are you using if you're not using ARDSnet? I can tell you the strategy I would like to use, and this is based on physiology, obviously no studies for a disease that I have never seen, you know, and, and to kind of, I guess, to put it simply in, in, for those who don't run, you know, ventilators a lot, you know, I see respiratory failure different than oxygen failure, you know, and, and to, to see, if you say that the lungs are like a balloon and typically in ARDS, whether it's infiltrate or, uh, you know, fluid or protonaceous material, you know, usually that balloon in a simplified way is getting thicker. And so it is getting harder to move air into it. And this is creating, uh, in some sense, some fatigue of the respiratory muscles. And so part of why people are put on a vent for respiratory failure is to provide the pressure, uh, you know, to bring those lungs, you know, back to their functional residual capacity and, and to literally uh, support them and keep them open because you're dealing with a low compliance state. So in, in this case, what I am concerned about is that all of the patients that I've seen put immediately on ventilators have had good compliance. And I don't know the answer, but I think it needs to be asked, is it possible that, you know, rather than the balloon being thicker, that it is actually thinner? You know, whether the virus is, uh, you know, attacking the, you know, alveolar capillary interface or some damage is being done there, but is it possible that we actually have a disease with a higher compliance than normal? In which case, is it possible, even possible, that, that PEEP we are using in order to get the SATs that we want uh, are cause, causing lung injury? And, and that's most, many people are now saying there's two different phases. There's a, a you know, a, a high compliance that goes into a low compliance and there's that transition. And there is this question is, is this transition a natural evolution uh, of the disease process in severe disease? Now, what I'll tell you, and I don't know that answer, is that everything I have seen suggests that it is not. And, and everything that I hear, I mean, people are dying at home, you know, and everything that I see are people that are just becoming hypoxemic and then bradycardic. And I have seen palliative care patients who pass in that fashion without respiratory distress and without hypotension. And yet, um, could it be possible that what we are trying to do with our primary intervention uh, in trying to get their SATs to a level that, that you know, we typically see as functional, uh, could it be possible we're using pressure that is uh, causing severe lung injury? And that is not to say that even if it was true, we may have to, unless there is another way to lift someone's sats, we may have to cause lung injury to make people survive. 
But but then at least it is a paradigm in which uh, uh, we know what we're doing. So just to sort of make it quick, what I would suggest, um, and this is what I would you know love to have people far more experienced than me uh, discuss, is for these high, com- I think you have to determine who is high compliance and who is low, and you have to separate them and you have to provide different respiratory strategies for each. So I, you know, in the ICU, we started to initially round on our COVID patients and then round on our ARDS patients so that the team had compartmentalized that in their mind. But for a COVID patient with high compliance, my initial go-to, you know, and I'm writing protocols now, and so any feedback is helpful, would be to leave their FiO2 at 100% until the viral replication has stopped, you know, to leave their FiO2 at 100% and provide only enough PEEP uh, to achieve a SAT of 80. Um, And I know that sounds crazy, and to provide either... Uh, uh, you know, um, narcotics or sedatives to keep their respiratory rate under 20. Um, and if you can't achieve that, or if there's any dyssynchrony, then possibly to, to paralyze. Um, and I know that sounds crazy because it's, it's, ours not completely flipped. Um, but this is also in line with what uh, Luciano Gattinoni, who is sort of the world's expert, you know, for the last two decades in, in ARDS management is saying, and he's coming out with these papers just in the last week, you know, saying this. And I, so I give a lot of credence to the Italian experience and to anyone's experience, in fact. And it just so happens that the expert was Italian. And so, he, you know, he experienced this disease. And I see it as a kind of gift that he's able to give us this information. But that is my, uh, you know, that would be my idea based on physiology of, of what might work better. And I think that's kind of what we're trying to do with our non-invasive devices, but but I, I would very much welcome any feedback because that is not based on data. I'm going to go and try to simplify this down to our, our emergency medicine level, not with the critical care, my, not my critical care hat, right? We're emergency physician. We deal with, you know, five, six patients, 12, 20, 50 at a time, right? And in the ICU, we know we have like, my 20 bed, my 40 bed, and that's it, right? So with the, in the emergency medicine, we try to say, hey, that number is 60. You guys are not going to tolerate this. We're going to, you know, he's going to crash. And we have, you know, mantra, and we're going to do something because we need to do it, and it's done. And when we look at the data of patients who's been intubated, you know, you're saying 50 to 80%, right? Depend data, data from... Uh, the ICU in Seattle, you know, 70%, 66 to 70%, um, 80, 88% Italy. I mean, so mortality rate that is so, so high that we're saying, wait a second, are we doing something wrong? And our nature is we see this number, right? We see this number, we see this post hoc and says, it's blinking red. The alarm's going off. Every person's running and everybody's looking and, and, and everybody's, you know, you hear people say to me, just intubate him now because you know the moment he gets on the floor in the ICU, the intern's going to rush and intubate him. And yes, the paradigm is very difficult because this is, goes against everything we've done and everything we believed. And those patients who are talking they're looking at us. They're not completely altered. They're not hypotensive. They're not crashing in front of us. 
I believe we have to give them a chance on non-invasive, high flow, non-invasive, and really take the time to look and not put every single patient into that box and make that patient fit into the box. But instead, we need to customize the care on the patient. We may have one patient, we're going to do the high flow, and then he got... 35 liters and 60% and he three days later walked away and another patient may have 50 liters of high flow that didn't work and we went to BiPAP and he might get better and we may have a patient that gets intubated but we need to start looking and saying wait a second ARDS net took 20 years for people to to follow it wasn't you know I didn't train that far along, but before ARDS net, we were do, we were giving 10 to 15 cc's of uh, air into the lung, right? And we're putting chest tube almost every time somebody ventilated. And when somebody went say, hey, we got to drop down the tidal volume, it took 10 years for people to become believers. And in emergency medicine, we want to make everybody fit. You know, you ask a resident, the first thing, 12, 500, 500 peep, 100, right? This is a disease that we cannot do this. We have to titrate. We have to do it slow. Give the patient a chance. So I'm going to defer uh, any judgment on you know what's working, what's not working to my colleagues like David and Cameron and Ashika who are in the thick of it right now. But I've been on a WhatsApp conversation with a good friend of mine, Gemma, who works in Rome. And she and I have had an almost daily ongoing conversation. And I I just want to read one of the texts that she sent to me one day. And, And she said, do not think that you know what's going on. She said, don't trust stability, even if initial blood gases are good. Do not think you know your enemy and that you've seen enough patients. We started one week ago and are still surprised by unexpected sudden evolutions. And when Cameron brings up the Gattinoni literature, and we have to learn from our Italian colleagues. We have to learn from those who have seen it all before us. And it's the best that we have because we don't have randomized trials about this. And I think that what David is saying makes complete sense. And it's one of the things that I learned in fellowship at shock trauma is the patient is going to teach me about the disease, but I have to be really good at listening to the patient. And that means watching, standing by, seeing how he responds to my treatments and not going according to some pre-printed protocol, but really assessing how does the patient do when I give a treatment and it makes complete sense to me from everything I've heard from the people who are in the trenches, from the Italians to the folks in New York to Miami, and not to mention Seattle, that this, this disease is not acting like any other disease. We have to listen to the patient. No, I completely agree with that. You know, we, when we initially opened the unit, we had you know, some patients on high flow and some patients intubated, and they were both a lot of work in different ways, you know, the intubated patients, cause they were, you know, generally going to multi-organ failure and then the high flow patients, because they required a tremendous amount of listening 
and cooperation. And we, you know, at one point we were joking that, you know, eight to five is going to be boot camp for them. And, you know, initially we didn't know what we were dealing with and we were urging them to do incentive spirometry and, you know, making sure they lied down and make sure they weren't sleeping on their back and, you know, everything like that. But, but it, you know, that, you know, I completely agree. And that's initially what concerns me so much is that I think in this country and, and, you know, we all work in, you know, academic hospitals that, that I think, you know, one week, two weeks from now, uh, if we find what, that what we're doing is not quite working, we may be able to pivot. Um, but I worry that there are hospitals all over this country that are currently setting up protocols, and the most popular of which uh, that I have heard is that when a patient comes in and, and if they are, are COVID positive, you know, by CT or symptomology, um, and, and they're uh, saturating uh, less than 90% on six liters nasal cannula, there are protocols which are calling for an early intubation uh, followed by an ARDSNET strategy. And it is very possible that this uh, is referring to what may be hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, um, and, and that does, it, it concerns me because, you know, that's the opposite of what, uh, you know, David and Evie are saying that, that, you know, what we need to do is to see these patients as individuals and to listen to them and to follow them. You know, I think it's, you know, I don't want to say we're running out of time, but, uh, I, you know, initially when all this happened, I felt that New York was about 10 days ahead of the country. And so that maybe we were given, you know, a, a gift like the Italians, uh, not that they were given a gift, but that we can try to do what we can to share our experience as the Italians are, are sharing theirs. Um, but that is one thing that really does, uh, continues to concern me. You know, if I could simplify this a little bit, I, I think of these patients falling into four categories and obviously like Evie said, so eloquently, you got to really look at the individual patient. But if I was going to put somebody in a box, um, there's really four of them. And I wanted to go through each one of them with you guys and kind of get some thoughts on it. So I'm just going to list the four and then we'll tackle these one at a time. So the first patient is somebody who you suspect has COVID or they do have COVID and they have very minimal symptoms. I think there's a whole set of issues that we have to talk about and unpack with that. The second one is what we call the silent hypoxemic or the happy hypoxemic, whatever is now being the coin phrase, which are our patients that they just, they have low sats, but they look completely happy. They're in no distress. I kind of created this third category called intermediate hypoxemia, which are those patients that you're kind of sitting on the fence on. So they have a low O2 sat, they might be a little bit tachypnic, tachycardic, they have some early signs of distress. And then finally, you have people who are just com in complete respiratory distress or fatigue. And I, I just want to tackle each one of these one at a time, if that's okay with you guys. So with the first group, the suspected or confirmed COVID with minimal symptoms. So most of these people can most likely go home. But the two big concerns with sending these people home is who's actually safe and not going to deteriorate and how do you follow them up? And so I wanted to pick your brains a little bit about how do you decide who's okay to go home? What are the cutoffs you're using for people to go home? What tools or strategies are you using? And then when you do send them home, how are you following up with them, if at all? So uh, I'll, I can start with that because we do have a lot of patients that we've been testing. And I'll say the testing process or the testing, uh, the, the patients who we've decided to test has changed immensely over the past three weeks. We first were only testing patients who had 
some travel experience or you know an exposure to somebody who was known to have COVID, et cetera. And it, and it quickly changed. It changed within within one day when I was on shift. In the morning when I came in, we had one testing strategy, and by the time I went home, it was another one. Um, and we are now able to test many people because we have an in-house test, and we also have a CDC test. The in-house test that we have will take roughly seven hours to process, and the CDC test that we have will take about six hours to process. And so if I if this patient is good enough to walk and talk and, and is not symptomatic, I'm going to send them home. And we have a system in place where our PAs will follow up on those tests and call the patient to tell them whether or not they were positive. And it's really convenient. What we do have is a pre-printed set of instructions that asks these folks to self-quarantine. Um, we don't have a quarantine mandate from the state of New Hampshire, but we are asking them to self-quarantine. And it's uh, I, I think this has been a success in being able to send these patients home and um, give them some reassurance that we are testing them and giving them the results. So we have a similar system. Um, our testing was very challenging at first. And so we had to come up with a system. The system was, how do we pick the one that can go home? And how do we pick the one that have COVID? Initially, we started doing flu on everybody. We started doing a respiratory panel on everybody. We're doing x-rays on everybody. And then we started running out of swab. And so we started altering our protocol based on what we had. And basically what we're doing now is somebody comes in, if they're setting 100%, we're stressing them. And if they're able to do three minutes of sit, if you're elderly, we make them sit up, sit down, sit up, sit down. Actually one to two minutes, um, we record their heart rate. If their O2 sat remains 98, 96, above 96, they go home with nothing. Uh, we will we'll swab them and the swab, we'll, the test will be followed by our APP. If the oxygen saturation drop below, then we send them to the back to do some imaging and then quantify them based on what therapy we're going to send them home. And if they come in hypoxic, then they go directly to the back. The f- we've set up protocols with our case manager. And if we send patient home with 90s uh, pulse ox after exercise, we we give them a prescription for pulse ox for oxygen compressors and we try to have case management organize the oxygen compressors for delivery at home that day and then we they can call the ed and talk to our app with any concern you know in in new york where um you know we work through lots of obstacles when it in the beginning um i mean there were even many more obstacles about you know sending people home you know, initially, so essentially half of our ideas turned into sort of a full COVID unit. And the truth is that probably a lot, of, a lot of other people on the other half may have COVID too. They're just asymptomatic. Um, it really feels like a tremendous amount of New Yorkers have this. But, uh, you know, I think the, um, the threshold for sending people home uh, has uh, somewhat gone down, uh, meaning we will send more people home now because our hospital is simply more full. You know, the hard thing with this disease is that 
it's almost like God came down and said, you get two days, you get five days, you get 15 days. And, and it, it, there's just almost no way necessarily now, and perhaps there are lab tests and someone will figure something out, but to predict it. And, and so I think there's a certainly a possibility that many of these people we send home will come back. And I don't think there's any way to stop that. And, and so I, I think that we had been trying to organize home oxygen uh, for some and, um, you know, the numbers are just staggering. And uh, so it's, you know, hard on our case managers. I mean, we're all, everyone's doing the best they can. But, you know, for example, we have, you know, patients that have home health aids that need need home health aids and cannot survive without them. Uh, yet we could not get tests quickly. And the home health aid company, understandably, will not send someone to their house unless their test is negative, uh, which is a test that we were getting uh, previously in five days. Uh, so, there's all sorts of discharge uh, issues. Um, I would say that, that almost the largest thing that would concern me are people that uh, do not have supervision, that live by themselves, certainly if they're older, uh, if uh, they're heavier, if they're obese, uh, uh, seems to tend to do worse or have any you know obstacle to return. I do not think that someone returning after you send them home should necessarily be seen uh, uh, or should not be seen as a failure. Uh, I think that uh, organizing their ability to return uh, should be seen as a success. So let's assume in a perfect world, we don't have any of those issues. And, and I realize that is not the reality, but let's just say for argument's sake, uh, you have somebody, they're sitting in front of you, uh, you do this walk test, and what is the lowest SAT? Again, I realize this is a black and white question, and it's not always black and white. What is the lowest SAT you are sending people home with that you feel comfortable sending people home with? For me, it's after that they have to be above 90. Okay. Cameron? Um, you know, truthfully, I, I've been in the ICU, so uh, <laughs> I've dodged this question, but, uh, you know, it's going around on the emails and, you know, so I would refer to my, you know, my colleagues, but, you know, I know that they are sending um, some patients home in, in the high 80s. Uh, um, I, I think they tend to be younger, you know, but, but I, again, I, I have been more in the receiving end in the last, uh, uh, you know, week and a half. So this fits in with, uh, the, the, the decision-making for sending any patient home from the emergency department. And I, I think about a few other things. What are, what are they going home to? What are their resources and, um, how sophisticated is their understanding of the disease process? And, and, and do I trust that they will really understand when to come back? And when you work in the mountains of New Hampshire, you got to realize that some people just won't come back. So I, I, I assess my patients based on how reliable are they and how resourceful are they and how much resource do they have. But all within that, if my patients understand and I can rely on the fact that they will return, I would say 88 to 90. Sorry to hold y'all's feet to the fire. I just, this is a question everybody's asking. So I just, it's, it's so different than the way we were practicing two months ago. So, all right. So second category, silent hypoxemia, the happy hypoxemic. Cameron, this is what gave you your fame on Twitter. Um, <laughs> so these patients, they usually have low O2 sats, but they have no external signs of distress. I mean, they're not tachypnic. They are not altered for all intensive purposes. They seem to be perfusing okay. You know, we can't let them sit at these low sats. And so in my mind, 
These seem to be some of the prime candidates for some of this non-invasive ventilation, high-flow nasal cannula, and awake proning. So specifically in this group, I wanted to ask, are you guys doing awake proning? And it sounds like some of you are. And what are the biggest logistical issues that you're seeing with this? You know, I think when I sent out that tweet, people, uh, <laughs> you know, it was inflammatory. So that got an audience. I realized, you know, why Trump does what he does. But uh, um, I, I think that people slightly misinterpreted that I said it was it was okay to let someone ride it at 44%. And, you know, that was a palliative care patient that was on a max high flow with a non-rebreather. So we were trying to oxygenate him as much as possible. And I was sort of more trying to show the um, uh, the principle that this patient's heart rate did not seem to be responding as as one as, as we would be used to. Again, just showing that this disease is completely different than, than you know, one of the many things that just makes you feel like you're in the, the twilight zone. But you know, I, I think that for this, you know, I do think eventually, you know, ideally that all these patients uh, would have as much oxygen as possible. I, I do sense that there is uh, a process by which at some point uh, hypoxemia worsens hypoxemia. And, you know, so I do think that these are the perfect patients uh, uh, to put on uh, a high flow uh, if you're able. And again, in New York, we're at a point where we need to ensure that our oxygen supply is going to be okay because high flow uses a tremendous amount of oxygen, more than even a ventilator, um, you know, when you get up there on the settings. But, you know, I do think these are the perfect patients to try your non-invasive techniques. Um, I even tend to, to, you know, and this is not data, but I, I tend to believe that uh, perhaps high flow may even be more gentle um, than uh, a CPAP um, or BiPAP. I also just as a, you know, as a major thing, which becomes an issue when these patients are sent to the floor, because initially some patients were sent to the floor on high flow, and we have uh, run into some problems. These patients will become entirely dependent on oxygen, meaning uh, if you take them far enough, and, and uh, to a point, I think you should take them, because we have had patients do better and avoid intubation and get better, but they will absolutely become entirely dependent on that device. And so if that high flow machine falls off uh, within sometimes minutes, uh, uh, they may, they have, they run the risk if they are far enough along, like if they're on, you know, 80% or especially hundred percent and 50 liters uh, of possibly uh, going bradycardic and dying. And, and so my, my reservation with CPAP, if we're riding people far uh, is that it's, um, you know, it's not something one can keep on for three or four days. And if people get a little bit delirious and knock it off and we're not paying close attention, then, then it's difficult. So as far as proning, I, I think it's very similar that you will typically see a remarkably uh, improved uh, saturation. And these saturations match their blood gases. We've done enough of them. You know, their low saturations match a very low PaO2. Um, but you will find a significant recruitment. I mean, not, not, I won't say recruitment, but improvement in your saturation. My same concern with proning is that people, you know, if you, if someone is saturating in their sixties on high flow and you turn them and, and they're now 92, uh, that recruitment does not appear to be sustained. And, and the virus appears to still be working, uh, out whatever it is working out for whatever time period that person is destined to have it until our, our therapies, uh, will help. And, and so, 
you know, I think that you have to be careful because at some point they'll flip back over and they may be worse than they were before. So you may see really weird things like their PF ratio going from 100 to 300 to 80. Um, and so, you know, what, I, what one thing I'm trying to do is just to ensure that there's a way we can identify because we're, you know, switching shifts and, and uh, it's hard to keep track of all the patients that, that if someone's lying on their stomach because they were significantly hypoxemic, that somehow we still need to identify them as high priority for possibly decompensating. But I do think, you know, that's my slight concern in the ER, although I think we have to try it uh, and treat each patient individually and do the best we can to get them as far as we can until the virus stops. But, you know, in the ICU, I was, uh, I felt like uh, some patients, we just needed to ride them out another day or two. Um, uh, whereas uh, in the ER, I, I do think there's a place for proning. Um, I just think people should be aware that it is unlike proning we're used to and does not appear to have a sustainable uh, uh, recruitment or improvement um, unless viral replication or, or the viral process uh, uh, slows down. I agree uh, with what Cameron just said. It's, uh, so Miami is uh, one of the second county, the highest in Florida, Miami-Dade and Broward with the highest case in the state of Florida. And Luckily for us, we're not where New York is. We don't have the 300 patients where actually our volume has dropped. So we have an entire COVID unit. We have the staff. We have the training. We're able to really get up to par. Our administration has really supported us. And so right now we're able to really try to see all those challenges. And one of the things is, is for the IPF, the happy hypoxic, the French accent comes out, they're happy and they're following. And this is, you know, one of the patient yesterday I said to him, I said, you know, if this nasal system drops off your face, you are going to die. And he looks at me and goes, are you serious? I'm like, yes, because he kept on saying, I want to go, I want to go, I want to go like somewhere. And I'm like, if you walk out of this and you take the system, you're going to die. And we taught him how to prone himself. And it's, I don't know, this is again, N of five, N of six, so maybe pure observational, but it seems when they go on their side, on their side, it's when you see one of the highest change. So even with morbid obesity patients, if you're unable to prone them, if they just go on their side, you put them on the right side and go on the left side, you're going to see some significant changes. But like Cameron said, it's a lifeline. And it's it's if they come off of that, if you had 45 liters, 50 liters high flow oxygen, 80%, and they come off of this, it's like opening the door of a cargo of a jumbo jet plane at high altitude. They're going to drop to the bottom. And this is where I think it's going to make certain people nervous and say, well, why don't we intubate? But this disease is weird. It's really weird. And it's, they get sick and either they're going to also recover super fast after 72 hours. The one who's going to recover, they're going to recover or it's going to be a super slow. And so if we're able to hold a patient, the, ha the happy hypoxic for 72 hours and able to maintain him, then I think we're going to make a change. I have a friend who is the medical director of an emergency department in an upstate New York hospital. And she has a friend who lives in lower Manhattan. And this guy has been sick and he was exposed and she thought maybe he had COVID, but 
this happened and and he called her and this happened when New York was already in the thick of it. And she and I were texting and she said, I have no idea where to tell him to go um, because Cameron, all you guys hospitals are full and it makes no sense if somebody is at home and can ambulate and is doing okay, but, but seems sick. So, um, and he doesn't have a PCP. And so what she did was she actually used this Roth score that, that you have Salim and asked him to measure the time that he could count from one to 30 um, and followed him in that way. And then she got his fiance to get online and find where she could get a pulse oximeter. She found one in New Jersey, got in the car, drove to New Jersey, purchased this pulse oximeter, came back, and they've been managing him with pulse oximetry. And his sats were in the in the 80s, and she was saying, okay, can you, you know, using the raw score, how high can you count? And can you ambulate around the apartment, back and forth, et cetera, and following him with that? And she's having him do awake proning and he's holding his own and he's doing well. And it really shows, I mean, this is a patient who two months ago, we never would have been managing friends or family or anybody we know from home saying, drive to New Jersey and get a pulse ox and follow that and lie on your stomach when you can. This disease has turned what we do on its head, but he's doing well. I, I just texted her and said, how's he doing? And she said, his set is 90 after ambulating and 92 at rest, and he's getting through it. So I really think that's a testimony to using other skills that we have to assess patients and, and you know, again, listening to the patient and the physiology to see what's working. I just want to add one thing, and this, this is, again, my chairman hat. If you're in a place and you're listening to this where you, the surge, you're not seeing that many COVID patients, this is the time that you need to start doing these things, finding out where this post ox, finding out your case management, the oxygen. These are the time to start looking at some of those um, protocols. And that, correct, Salim says, you know, maybe wrong in five days, but yeah, and, and one thing I would say that you know I wish you know we we learned, uh, which is just becoming increasingly true, is that in this particular disease there is really no patient that's admitted to the hospital that doesn't warrant a monitor um, because we're really not admitting patients that look that well. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't be admitting them, and yet uh, we have a lot of beds in the hospital that don't have you know, monitored capabilities, uh, and uh, uh, this is COVID, and so the doors are being closed. Um, and so we're coming up with all sorts of solutions, like uh, putting cameras in the rooms, but but these are the things, yeah, if you're, if you're not, you know, in the, the surge of it, you know, a patient who's admitted to the hospital uh, today, uh, if they didn't look well, is highly likely to be pretty hypoxemic tomorrow. It doesn't mean that they need to be intubated, but but um, um, but it is hard to manage these patients uh, without monitors behind closed doors. 
So I want to get into the third category because I think this is the one that makes me the most nervous of all the categories. I know they should all make me nervous, but this is the one that I I really stress about the most. And this is what I'm calling the intermediate hypoxemic. So this is the guy or gal that comes in. They have low O2 sats. They're having some mild symptoms of respiratory distress. Maybe they're a little bit tachypnic. Maybe they have a little bit of tachycardia, but they're not like crashing. They just, they just look like they're, they're putting some effort into their breathing. And one of the big fears people have is, is that if we're not intubating quickly, these people are going to crash quickly. And now we're doing crash intubations. And so what I wanted to ask you guys in this category is if we concede that we should maybe try non-invasive ventilation, high flow nasal cannula, what's your threshold to consider intubation? Because all the numbers everybody's throwing out are significantly lower than anything I've ever used in my practice. But I think this is the reality of, of this disease. And so I just, I wanted to ask you guys, at what point do you pull the trigger in this category? The person that's kind of on the fence. Let me start with this one and say that it all depends on your environment. In my environment, we've not had the surge that Cameron and David are seeing yet. And so we have time, we have ventilators, we have negative pressure rooms. Right now, today, on April 3rd, we have resources. And so we are probably going to have a lower threshold to intubate for a couple of reasons. Number one, because that's what we're comfortable with. And we do have the resources um, and, and it's not going to be too early because I still believe that we, if we take the time to stave off intubation with high flow nasal cannula, we can have the patient spending less time on the ventilator. And we know that positive pressure ventilation is not the best thing for lungs. But within that, we're probably going to have a lower threshold than Cameron or David will have because A, we haven't seen the volumes that they have. B, we're still simulating and and simulating like crazy um, throughout the day to get comfortable with the roles of the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the intubator, and the tech in the room. And we want to make sure that it's safe for the patient and safe for us. So we're probably going to be intubating earlier. If we were intubating five to 10 patients in a shift, uh, I guarantee we would have a little bit different experience. And from, from listening to folks who are doing that, it, it is different. I find myself being a lot more patient with patients' oxygenation and respiratory rates. I'm not jumping on them the same way that I did four weeks ago. Perhaps we used up a lot of our resources because we were practicing under the guise of the things that we know, right? Someone who's tachypnic is going to tire out soon, so let me intubate sooner rather than later. Someone who's walking in with a saturation of 50% clearly needs to be intubated and needs more efficient ventilation, But because I don't have those resources at my fingertips anymore, I'm being more patient about them. I'm I'm sort of sitting on them a little bit longer and finding that they're tolerating that, which is really the dumbfounding part here. How is it that you can continue to breathe at 40 and not get tired and not get worse? Why is your oxygenation actually going up as opposed to going down? All sorts of crazinesses. For us, I... 
don't really see the, for us, the third category, what you call the intermediate hypox, hypoxemic, because for me, they fit in the same category of silent hypoxemia because they're, most patients are tachypnic, they're tachycardic, they have low SATs, right? And if the patient is, mental status is really what, what's going to drive us, the decision, it's, um, we're going to try the high flow and other methods. It's, if the patient is deteriorating and they're starting to become more altered, they're becoming, um, they're not, you know, you're not making any improvements. And what's the magical number of OTUSAT? This is, I think, going to vary from everybody. If you're seeing 10, 20, 30 of those patients, you're going to be, hey, you know what? He's, he's, he's hanging out in the 60s and he's talking to me. I'm, I'm cool with that. And it's going to vary. Um, and it's, and it's again, in which phase you are, if you're in an early phase where yes, you had the luxury of having 10 vents and, or 50 vents in your, in, in your hospital. And yes, you're going to have there as well. We have the vents. Why not use them? Right. It's something. And just remember that they stay on the vent for a long time and they may not come off. So it's really very difficult decision. It's not a, a quick recipe, but again, I haven't seen those patient crash and, Contrary to Evi, in real life, for us, we've removed the respiratory therapist outside the room. We removed the nurses outside the room. It's me and the residents or an attending in the residence, and we're pushing the meds. We're intubating the patient. We're putting him on the vent. We're doing the bagging, and then everybody else come in the room. We're limiting the amount of contact with the patient. And it's... Um, Again, those patients, for me, the third class is the, does he have COVID or does he have something else? And you'll notice that your gut feeling is going to point right away because you'll see those patients say, once you've seen 10, 15, 20, 30, you're going to be like, oh, wow, this is COVID. This is COVID. And so, um, again, we're not saying don't intubate. We're not saying that. We're saying give the patient a chance. You know, our trigger, I, this is, a, the mo I think, one of the m most important questions is uh, what is the trigger to, to intubate? Um, and again, an extremely distressing question. So, you know, initially when we opened, we wanted a trigger. And we were saying when you acquired high flow at 80% to achieve, uh, you know, 80%, 40, you know, 50 liters. That's what the Florale study did. So 80% uh, 50 liters to achieve a SAT of 88, 90 um, uh, that was when it was time for intubation and, and we did that on one patient and, you know, then the next patient challenged us because she was the patient who, uh, had no distress, absolutely none at that. And it, nothing felt right about that. Now, um, we ended up trying to do everything we can not to put a breathing tube in. And that was one of the, uh, you know, kind of crystallizing moments to realize that this is not like any other disease because there was no trigger that we're used to uh, in order to put it in. So, you know, now, and this is arbitrary, this is completely arbitrary, but as a guide, uh, what we are saying, we try to get all of them on high flow. So we actually ordered a lot of high flow machines and we're, we're doing a lot. We don't send anyone on high flow to the floors anymore um, or on CPAP, uh, which makes some things difficult. But um, we are saying that, you know, at least this is what we have. Uh, and, and certainly it's sort of, it allows for some patient, um, um, you know, individualism is that if you uh, require 90% high flow to achieve a, a SAT of 88 to 90 and you are in distress, which is uh, predominantly uh, tachypnea and anxiety, 
because uh, that is what we see that the distress is not the inability to talk. Uh, actually, you'll notice that sometimes their stats go up with talking, which is another weird thing. Um, but it seems to be uh, kind of a pattern. But uh, if you uh, are on an FIO2 of 90% uh, with a SAT of 88 to 90 um, and, uh, you know, displaying anxiety and distress, then, then it's time. But it leaves some room up uh, to the provider. Um, now, what about all the patients that are not on high flows? And, and you know, we're working through that and, and there is no set policy. And, uh, you know, that's very patient specific. And, and you know, predominantly, um, you know, we are looking for that low SAT that is concerning in conjunction uh, with tachypnea and anxiety. So the fourth group is respiratory distress, respiratory fatigue, whatever you want to call it. And in my mind, these patients are going to require intubation. I mean, they're a little bit maybe too far gone to try and do something like non-invasive ventilation or high flow. Maybe you guys will disagree with that. Um, But many of these patients, like we said early on, at least their pulmonary compliance is pretty normal or high. They maybe have some hypoxic vasoconstriction in the lungs. And so it seems like you know, cranking up the peep and prone positioning, things that we typically would do for ARDS, um, maybe are very minimal help in these patients. And then add to that, as you start cranking up the peep, you can also start compromising cardiac filling. So we kind of started talking about this a little bit earlier in the podcast, but for me, that's down in the ED, that's, that's starting these patients on a ventilator, what would your recommendations be in terms of strategies, in terms of what I should start them with? So the ARDS net trial talks about, you know, starting at low tidal volume, uh, four to six milliliters per kg and, you know, titrating PEEP to maintain FiO2 above 90, right? And PEEPs as high as 18 to 20. Now, what we've been saying is these are compliant lungs. Right. This is lungs that are compliant, meaning compliant that they have the volume, right? They tolerate volume. They don't have that sheer uh, damage that happens with ARDS. And so probably would start the patient anywhere with an eight to 10, maybe eight to 15 cc's of tidal volume um, based on my mean airway pressures and my plateau pressures. Even though that I'm not using plateau pressure because that's a big drive of the ARDS net, but I'm just going to see the compliance. And it, because those patients have so much compliance, you're not going to have any issues with big airway pressure. You're not going to have any issue with plateau pressure. Probably, and maintain them, my PEEP, the highest I'll go is probably 8 to 10. Uh, you, know, I, uh, you know, I think something similar. I, I think that, uh, you know, right after you intubate them in, in the ED, uh, they're going to be in a high compliance state. What I would say is this is an, an oxygen first uh, pressure last strategy and, and just know that there is a possibility that uh, with each increase in pressure, you risk uh, damaging some lung. That's how I see it now, which may not uh, turn out to be true. So, you know, I'd say put them on a hundred percent. First, before you intubate them, look at their vitals. This is what I tell some of the residents to look at their vitals. Ideally, their vitals after you intubate them should be exactly the same as they are before you intubate them. Um, and I do think there is some relation with uh, too much PEEP and per- perhaps it's decreased, you know, right ventricular filling or, or you know, decreased preload, but, uh, but they tend to get hypotensive when the PEEP is too high. So I would put them on 100% uh, oxygen, um, uh, you know, start the PEEP at five. And, and uh, you know, like David said, you're going to have to tolerate a lower SAT. 
I mean, they after you intubate them, they they their sats dive quickly, and it takes time for them to go up. So you might after you intubate them, their sat might be fifty, um, and they typically will go up slowly. I don't know that that you know slamming the peep up to twenty uh, is good for them, but but I would generally say um, uh, you know I would try to max out a peep at, at eight or ten lower if possible. If you need better, uh, just like David said, if you need better, you know, you want your SAT to go up, I would be more liberal with the tidal volumes. And if you're hypotensive, uh, you know, try to back up the PEEP if you can. Now, the question is in the end of it, uh, I do think if we if we are insisting on a SAT above 92 or 92, you know, there's no other way to do that, I think, in a, you know, in this hypoxemic progressive, you know, disease than to try to uh, increase the peep. Um, now, you know, a lot of what I'm saying, you know, really, I, I don't want to, this is, this is nearly precisely what, uh, Luciano, Luciano Gattinoni is saying. Um, and, and there are recent letters and, and for all those interested, I, I would urge you to, to find them. This is the opposite of what we would typically do. And I do think since we have, you know, one of the experts, uh, of ARDS, you know, pathophysiology suggesting that I think we do have some, at least some, literature and, and some uh, backing to do this if we sense this is the physiology we're seeing. I don't believe in crash intubation. You know, I make sure that I have an IV that is functioning. The patient is receiving fluid. You know, if the patient is borderline fluid, you know, I'm having either my push presser if I don't have access to a drip. If not, I'm starting a drip ready in case if they drop. I make sure they tank the volume, make, give them fluid, make sure they're very fluid responsive. And, you know, once once you, I don't, we don't bag our patient. We take them off high flow and directly to intubation. Um, and even if they go from 60s down to the 40, you have 30 seconds to get the tube and intubate and you'll see the heart rate will not budge a bit. Okay. So Evie, these sets of questions are specifically for you because this is your area of expertise. Uh, I actually reached out to a bunch of friends like Swami and Haney, and and they actually, most of their questions were about neuro stuff when it comes to COVID-19. So I just want to kind of change gears here a little bit, if that's okay with everyone. I think the first question I have for you is, how are you handling stroke symptoms, patients coming in with suspected COVID or known COVID and having a stroke? So I think this changes a lot of people's thoughts in terms of imaging, systemic thrombolysis, endovascular therapy. Are you doing anything different than you normally would in these patients? No, we are not. We are not doing anything different except that we're donning PPE. And it's funny because um, today, working in, in the department, we every time a consultant comes down, the first thing they do is come into our cave and they say, what do I have to do to go into that room? <laughs> because you know, we, we are the experts in who do we need to don for, what kind of protection are we going to be wearing? Is it going to be the N95? Are we going to put on our, we have, we now have a shield that we're wearing with the N95, or are we going to put on full pepper? And um, so we're not doing anything different. We are seeing patients with stroke symptoms and Obviously, we don't know if they are COVID or not. We're asking the screening questions to see if they have had any symptoms that are suspicious, but we're doing the same thing. One of the really interesting things about this and thinking about stroke and COVID is 
there is some emerging data from China and Italy that COVID-19 patients um, have a blood clotting disorder that may be contributing to their respiratory failure. And the thinking is that um, microthrombi form in the blood vessels of the lungs. And again, think back to what we were saying earlier about HAPE. It's not homogeneous. It's uh, it's in patchy areas of the lungs. And the thought is maybe TPA, and I don't mean to sound like a neurologist here, but maybe TPA would help. And I'm, I'm, I'm hearing that the TPA naysayers in the background um, screaming as I say this, but um, there's a trial that's ongoing right now between folks at um, Beth Israel in Boston and the University of Colorado, the University of Colorado and Denver Health in Denver, and they're looking at um, COVID-19 patients and giving them TPA. They're doing this under a compassionate use program, and they're studying to see if this will be helpful. They're, they're thinking that COVID-19 patients may have inflammation-linked tissue damage that may contribute to clot formation. So I, I just find that fascinating. No, that's really interesting because, you know, you know, initially when I was, you know, I was thinking, you know, just, just like HAPE, you know, the clinical syndrome is also from what I read, because I've never seen it, but similar to what you read about with decompression pulmonary sickness, which is really just the bends of the lungs, which is, you know, a rare, <laughs> the rarest of the bends. But, you know, if you think that, uh, you know, pathophysiologically, you have the formation of, of bubbles moving into the, you know, alveolar capillary space that possibly you have microthrombi uh, causing the same mechanism, I mean, not the same mechanism, but a, a mirror mechanism of injury. You know, I've been hearing more and more and reading more and more, lots of people coming in talking about neurologic stuff like headache, anosmia, maybe some altered mental status. And at least out of the initial reports, it didn't seem like these were common symptoms, but I'm, I'm starting to see this more and more. And, and even physicians that are, are getting COVID positive are starting to complain about these things. And I don't mean complaint, but they're symptoms that they have. I'm unaware of any like CF, CSF type studies to date, unless you can tell me different. The question I have for you is what's the mechanism at play here? Is it like an encephalitis? Should we be thinking about LPs? Do we know anything about prognosis when it comes to this? I'm so glad you asked me these questions because I think that this stuff is fascinating. Um, I might be a little bit biased, but we know that there are patients that have anosmia and loss of taste, loss of smell, and that they might be early signs of COVID-19. We know from previous coronavirus that the, the virus has a couple of different ways to get into the nervous system. First of all, dissemination from the systemic circulation. That's easy. We can understand that. It makes sense. The second part is they can move across the cribriform plate of the ethmoid. And What's the mechanism? How do they do this? We know that the COVID-19 virus and previous coronaviruses latch onto ACE2 receptors. Now, ACE2 receptors are found in many areas of the body. They're in the lungs, the heart, the kidneys, the intestines, the brain, and the testicles. And so when the coronavirus latches on to those ACE2 receptors, that's how we might see symptoms. And so you can get 
retrograde axonal transport in the olfactory, the trigeminal, glossopharyngeal, the vagus, or even peripheral nerves. And this is what we think is going on there. Now, I know that the ACE the ACE2 receptors are coming into play with many of the questions that we're asking, including lots of folks are talking about, and you guys may have seen this, is that the patients that you're intubating have a lot of uh, oropharyngeal edema. And there's some question about whether or not the ACE2 receptors are playing a role in that. There's cardiac um, manifestations of COVID, and there's a question about whether or not the ACE2 receptors are playing a role. I mean, these receptors are all over the body, and the brain is clearly one of those one of those parts. So that's why we think that's what we think is are the two mechanisms that people lose smell and taste, and we're thinking that those may be early signs. So when we're assessing patients, we're going to ask about that, and it's not something that people would think to say, oh, I've, I've lost my sense of smell or taste. I better go to the emergency department and get checked out. It's something that I think most of us, most of us sense when we have an upper respiratory infection. But in, in the time of COVID-19, we're, we're thinking a little bit more seriously about that. Isn't that cool? It's awesome. So I want to give each of you an opportunity at the very end of this podcast, just in case somebody wants to fast forward and just wants to know what the bottom line is. So if you want people to remember nothing else about this podcast, about this information, what is the message you want them to remember? And I'll let you guys go one at a time. I find myself humbled by this infection. For as much as we think we know about how to deal with it, every day I go to work and I am floored by some new way to do something. I am humbled by someone else's ingenuity of how to handle this. I'm grateful for the people that I work with. I'm constantly amazed by how we have come together as a group as a whole around the world to put our information together, to put our our knowledge together so that we can hopefully figure this out a little bit. And I'm not really sure that we're any closer to understanding it. Maybe we're just temporizing things and some of the things that we're, we're doing are working and we're being lucky about them. But really, it's it's baffling. If you take anything out of this, and again, I may be completely wrong, take your time, don't jump to conclusion. Give the patient a chance. And the rest, just listen again to the podcast. Uh, you know, I, I guess for me, uh, you know, I would say if there's anything to, to take away, you know, this is a such a strange, strange, strange disease. And, and that is what, you know, most people I believe will find when you're working with these patients. And, and I think it's going to raise a lot of different views. And, you know, I tend to really uh, believe that it needs to be investigated, uh, uh, you know, whether our um, typical high pressure ventilation is actually uh, responsible for some lung injury. But what's more important than that, um, because that could be wrong and it could be right, and I don't know, is that I do know that everything starts, everything starts with understanding that this is something new. I think that unless we believe that, unless as clinicians we insist on that, then the researchers 
and the politicians and everyone else that is also working so hard uh, to uh, fight this in different arenas will not understand. And I think that until we can absolutely declare uh, that this seems to be something we have never seen before, you know, then we're going to run into problems. But if we can say that, and if, you know, we can make people believe that, then everything else will follow. So the message I, I really want people to hear is a couple of messages. The first one is, uh, thank you, David and Salim and Cameron for, for doing this podcast and for including me. And everybody, please share information. Because if, if nothing else, this pandemic has really opened up the floodgates of sharing information. Be patient with your colleagues. Every day is a new day and it's a new PPE strategy and it's a new vent strategy and it's a new way to treat our patients. So be patient with everybody around you. Have an open mind. Be open to thinking about different ways to treating patients and listen to the patient. And finally, I just want to say that this pandemic and this crisis has taught me And I think I can speak for all of us. It's taught all of us in a very palpable way what is important in life, whether it's because you're now spending a lot of time with your family because you're sheltering or because you're spending very little, if any, time with your family because you're living in separate places like my husband and I are. This has taught me what's really important in life. And the first and foremost thing is family. And I think if we walk away from this whole crisis with that one lesson, it will have been valuable. So thanks guys for doing this. We're learning and we are, this is a very challenging time. And yes, um, you have to adapt to new protocol. You have to adapt to, you know, we, we're, right now uh, limiting our PPE use because we want to make sure we don't run out, you know, and people don't understand this is United States of America and why don't we have all the PPE we want? Prepare yourself for a marathon. When we enter this in the last week of February, I thought for sure by April 15, I'd be over. And then realizing that we're not even at the surge of Miami yet, we're, we're here for a marathon. Take care of yourself as much as you can. Read, share knowledge, and be patient. And don't forget to thank your staff around you. The janitor. This is the time that you're going to learn the janitor's name. Mine is one, and, and older team, and I check on them every day when I walk in. And make sure we learn and take care of each other. Because if we don't, we're not gonna we're not going to survive this. Thank you guys for being patient with me. I know this is... It went rather long. I I just want you all to know how much I appreciate you. I appreciate you taking the time away from your already busy schedules for dropping knowledge and sharing that. And I hope many people learn from these lessons from you. And uh, just thank you from the bottom of my heart. Stay safe. um, Take care of yourselves and wash your hands a lot. Thank you very much. We hope you have enjoyed this special podcast from RebelCast. For more information about RebelCast, visit www.rebelem.com. 
For more information about AAEM, please visit our website www.aaem.org. While you're there, check out other podcasts produced by AAEM and find all episodes of Critical Care and Emergency Medicine under the Resources tab and then Publications. Join us again next episode when Dr. David Farsi will discuss another issue of importance for critical care and emergency medicine.